pastor in Australia has written a book entitled 2008, God's Final Witness. In it, he claims to be predicting literally the opening of the bowls and their judgments on the planet. He believes we're already in the tribulation period. He mixes truth from Revelation with his own rather arrogant claims. He combines scientific threats to the planet, including cracks in the Earth's magnetic field, the eruption of volcanoes, radiation, tsunamis, even the collapse of the World Trade Center to all fit into his scheme. He ties it all up together with his book. He writes, God's two witnesses, his two prophets, are established to witness to the whole world about the greatest phase yet of his plan and purpose for mankind. It is now with boldness, confidence, and great clarity that I give to you what God has given me. Now you know you're beginning to veer off the path. God has given him something unique that he is now going to give to us outside of the word of God. He says, I am to announce through God's direct revelation to me that I am one of those two witnesses. He writes, I know the timing of the events as the seals of revelation are opening. I know the sixth seal has already opened. I know the exact day the first seal was opened. He writes, over the past 6,000 years, only 144,000 people have been molded and fashioned and trained by God so they can rule with Christ in the kingdom. So if you're not one of them, it's too late by now. His name is Ronald Wineland. I uh, was on uh, the computer Oh, a wonderful website for pastors, thesaurus.com, so we get all our alliterated outlines uh, for free. <laughs> well, you've got to search the words out, but it's a great source. And I typed in the word prediction, and this commercial came up on the right side of my computer. And before I knew it, I was researching what this guy was writing, and evidently a lot of people are reading. I hadn't heard about him before. But he claims that the Apostle John wasn't allowed to reveal everything that was going to happen. He was allowed. And so he has revealed it. In fact, the blurb on his book congratulates the fact that while the Apostle John was given uh, the task of recording prophetic events, he was given the task by God to reveal them. Never mind that the book in the Bible that we've been studying now here or just starting to, isn't called the recordings of John. It's called the what? The revelation to John. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the apostle John. And by the way, never mind as well that the apostle John ends this book of prophecy by saying, if you add one word to this book of prophecy, you are in deep trouble. That's my translation. Right? So I fear greatly for him. What I find interesting and objective, which is then gives us an ability to evaluate him, he declares in this book that was published late summer 2006, that by the fall of 2008, the United States will no longer exist as a, a nation. So many of these guys tie America into whatever you know, the end times are going to be. Certainly we're tied in, but you can't really find us. He believes that we're going to be wiped off uh, the planet for the most part. Most of his followers are now selling their belongings. They are living in temporary shelters, much like the publication of um, 88 Reasons in Why Christ is Going to Rapture the Church in 1988. I remember that came out right as I began pastoring. 
and uh, Korean believers, among uh, others, really followed this man's calculations. They sold their homes, put their pets to sleep, and quit their jobs and waited for the rapture to occur in 1988. And the devastation and and confusion, especially in in other countries, was was uh, really terrible. Uh, it's it's wonderful that God used that book to win people to Christ. Though it's one thing to make wrong calculations. It's another thing to say you're the prophet of God and you're the last one. That's another thing entirely. That's what he believes. Well, he's going to be exposed in about 11 months because 2008 is ticking. And at the end of 2008, in fact, evidently May of 2008 is very significant, and then by the fall, September, October, America ceases to exist. Uh, if, If that, in fact, doesn't happen... And I I doubt it will. I think what his followers ought to do for causing such harm and confusion, not to mention the tremendous pain and strain on the church, in particular among those who do believe in the Lord but believe in him as well, what I do hope they do is take this false prophet outside the city limits and do what? No, 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 I'm not going to say that. Um, that That would be actually too quick. What I'd like to see them do is put him in one of the caves in Russia for the rest of his life where he can think it through and maybe go back and pick up the last word from God. And it behooves us to attempt to dig in here and understand it. Now, we do want to know the future, don't we? There is something about the nature of mankind that would love to have a date. We have to be careful that we certainly don't set dates and we also have to be careful of the other extreme extreme, and that is that we don't look at anything happening and saying, well, boy, that's significant or that's interesting. That seems to be moving us toward this global community which will usher in a one world ruler. Um, We don't want to do that either, Uh, but we've got to be careful. Any of you remember Y2K? You remember that panic? I know of churches that began to store grain in their basements. I remember uh, people selling uh, their homes and uh, moving out into the country, which was probably closer, I guess, being prepared because it strikes me, you know, the only people that were really prepared for Y2K were the Amish. (laughs) They were ready, and they could smile at the rest of the world. The truth is we know he's coming. We know he's going to rapture the church. And he will eventually come to set up his kingdom. We're not given the date. And God is, is choosing not to tell us that, which is intended to keep us alert and trusting and ready and longing. So let's avoid the extremes as we study together. There are millions of connections every week into horoscope, phone lines, and uh, magazines as people try to find some purpose and plan for their lives in the stars, about a million a week in New York alone watch the movement of the stars I have read as indicators of their future. So I want you to be wise. I want you to stay in the scriptures and avoid those things outside of the scriptures that may seem to tell you what the future is. One of the authors I was reading It's interesting, he told of an event where a believer was pressed by a fortune teller to give him some money and she would tell him his immediate future. Not his long-term future, but his immediate 
future. And he said, you mean to tell me that you can tell me what I'm going to be doing this time tomorrow? And she said, absolutely. And he said, listen, I will pay you double what you are asking if you can tell me what I was doing this time yesterday. She, of course, smiled and said, well, never mind. It's interesting that until the development of modern medicine, it was generally believed in the Middle Ages that a person with curvature of the spine had some kind of special link to the spirit world. In fact, malformation of the spine that resulted in a hump, as in a hunched back, was considered to be a mark of great psychic powers. These people were often pursued for some kind of of truth about the future. They were believed to be capable of seeing into the future. Of course, we don't believe that anymore because we understand now that curvature of the spine has nothing to do with psychic powers or spirit beings or even demons that revealed the future as they did believe in the darker side of this. But that word, that phrase has sort of hung around and lingered even to this day, for we to this day call a sense of future events or some premonition to be a hunch, which is where this came from. I've, I've just got a hunch that something's going to happen. Well, I've got good news for you. We don't have to rely on false prophets with new revelation. We don't need to to sell everything and move to Russia and live in a cave where many are even to this day now living, waiting for this false prophet's words to come true. We don't operate on just a hunch. We do have the revealed word of God and we have enough to so move us and change us and ready us that if he should come today for the church, we will say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. In fact, that truth was intended by the Apostle Paul not to produce panic, but to provide comfort. Comfort one another with these words. So we are uncovering more than a hunch. This is the word of God. How can we trust John, the apostle? Well, the first eight verses, and we'll get through verse eight today, basically lay out the the, the signature and authority and truth of this book as it is authored by none other than God. One phrase after another authenticating the revelation as coming from the triune God. You remember the very beginning, it started the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about him and by him and through him, which the Father, God, gave him to show to his slaves. Those of us who've come to faith in Christ have become enslaved no longer to sin, but enslaved to uh, the Savior. Uh, think about the authentication this way. I have people every once in a while come up to me after a service or out by the bookstore and, with a book, and they'll, they'll ask me if I'll, I'll sign one of my books. And sometimes I'll kid around and I'll say, Do you want me to sign it? Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, somebody really famous. And they'll laugh, No, you sign it. So I'll open to the flyleaf, and as neatly as I can, which is pretty horrible, I will sign my name. Think of it this way. What you have in the first eight verses here in the flyleaf of this book of prophecy is the signature of God. The signature of God. This is the publication of the triune God. Now let's go to verse 4 where we 
pick up our study. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the signature of God the Father, and all three persons will sign this book of the prophecy. This is the signature of God the Father. In fact, in the Hebrew language, this counterpart, or this, this verb expressing who was and is and is to come is Yahweh. That verb simply means I, I am. Now, I am sounds like you're referring just to the present tense, but within that verb is the implication of all the tenses. This is the book of the Revelation from I am who was and is and is to come. This is the signature of the Father. You and I are immortal. We will never have an ending, but we did have a beginning. But he always was. And at the same time, he is. And he always will be. He is all of it. The sum and substance and culmination at any given time of time. And this is why, of course, Jesus Christ created such a stir when he chose that signature and said, I sign that too. And he said to the Jewish people and the leaders, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. This was stunning. He wasn't telling them that he was a prophet As Islam believes, he wasn't telling them that he was a child created by the sexual liaison of the father and Mary, which Mormonism believes. He was saying, I am God. I had no beginning. I am God in the flesh. And did his audience pick up on it? Did they think, well, maybe he wasn't really meaning that? The very next verse says they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they knew he was declaring himself to be equal with God, the Father, the one who was and is and is to come. If you look at verse 8, you read the signature, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now most believe this is Christ speaking here. There is a little bit of a debate, but in my Bible it's in red letters, so that settles it. (laughs) I know, it must be the Lord. I am the Alpha and Omega, and I do believe it is the Lord Jesus speaking. In fact, he will use this clearly later on in the book of Revelation. I am A to Z, Alpha and Omega. What's really amazing then is to recognize that Christ is speaking in verse 8, and titles for Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, are also referring to the same one who is God, or signs his name God, the Lord God. And look at the end of the verse. The Almighty, the Alpha and Omega is equal with, in fact, you're not even sure who's talking. They are seen as one. The Almighty, that's the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew name Shaddai, the Almighty One. Jesus Christ can legitimately lay claim to the divine title of omnipotence as Shaddai. This is the title of divine power and omnipotence. By the way, throughout the Old Testament, Shaddai was often the name linked with God's ability to fulfill any promise he made to his people. So it is no surprising as he ends sort of the signature point of introducing himself 
as the author of this revelation, he ends by saying, by the way, I can keep these promises to my people for I am omnipotent God. And he uses that term and title to sign it. This is not just a hunch from John. This is from God the Father. The next person of the Godhead to sign the flyleaf of this book is the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 4, but from the seven spirits who are before the throne, for the first time we read uh, a significant number in the book of Revelation. Some of the numbers that appear in the book of Revelation are going to be easy to figure out, and some of them we will not know. And we'll just say we don't know. But this one is clear. In fact, it really comes from Isaiah's own pen as he describes the Spirit of God with this number, a number that signifies completion and perfection and fullness. And so Isaiah, uniquely in chapter 11, describes the Spirit with a seven-fold descriptive statement. He is the spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is the spirit of understanding. He is the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The seven spirits is an expression to symbolize the Holy Spirit's perfection and completion and fullness. And we'll see that number uh, referred to by other members of the Godhead as well later on in the prophecy. So the third person then within the Godhead to officially sign his name to the flyleaf of this book is Jesus Christ. See, this book is, is the publication of God the Father and God the Spirit and now here God the Son. And if you notice in your text, he is, he's referred to three very precious ways. He's called the faithful Verse 5, and Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This has to do with his responsibility. The Apostle John, by the way, was uniquely passionate about revealing the authentic testimony of Christ. In his gospel, he, he described Christ as the one who came into the world to explain. You could render that verb. The person and plan of the Father, John 1.18. He recorded how Christ stood before a Pilate and, and, and Jesus said, I came into the world to testify to the truth, John 18.37. When Jesus Christ speaks, he, the Lagos of God, the word of God, always speaks the truth. He is a faithful witness. He doesn't make anything up. He doesn't tell a lie. He tells the truth. He testifies as a faithful witness. Christ is also called here in this text the firstborn of the dead. This isn't a reference to Christ being God's first little baby boy and many more baby boys and girls will be born and they'll also be raised from the dead. Now, this Greek word refers to uh, priority, supremacy. He is supreme. He conquered death He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the one who conquered. He has priority over. He has supremacy over the dead and death. Firstborn does not refer to time sequence, but preeminence as the one who conquered death forever. 
So Christ is the faithful witness. This refers to his responsibility. He's the firstborn of the dead or from the dead. This is a reference to his resurrection. And thirdly, you note here it says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This has to do with his reign over all. He will reign on David's throne over all the kings of the earth. In Psalm 24, verse 7, he is called the king of glory. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, he is called the king of heaven. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, he's called the king of the Jews. In John 1, 49, he's called the king of Israel. In 1 Timothy 1, 17, he's called the king of the ages. In Revelation 15, 3, he's called the king of the saints. And further, in Revelation 19, 16, he is called the king of kings. what, What more can you say than that about his his reign over everything. This is not a hunch from John. This is the publication of the triune God and all three members of the Godhead have signed on. Father, Spirit, and Son. And John breaks out in this little hallelujah. He just starts to sing this doxology. That comes next. It is the publication of the sovereign leading to the praise of the, of the saint. In fact, you could write little quote marks around the words to him, start there, and then go down to the end of verse 6 with the word amen. There's his doxology. It's the first of many that are going to come in Revelation as John just breaks out in, in, in praise. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or amen if you're Presbyterian. (laughs) Wonderful doxology. He speaks of his love and his joy. Notice the three stanzas in this doxology. You ought to circle them. First he says, Jesus Christ loves us. This supreme, omnipotent king loves us. It isn't loved us, by the way. It's present tense. He did love us from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. But, you know, we tend as Christians to think in terms, well, he, he, he loved me. He, he, he did love me. He says, he loves me, and he loves you right now. I'm enjoying reading one of my commentary friends, uh, Ray Stedman, who's been with the Lord. I never met him, heard a lot about him. He pastored a church in California for over 40 years, a graduate of the same seminary I attended. He he, He talks in his commentary about a time when he was traveling through Virginia and he was traveling with another very well-known but older pastor and mentor, a guy by the name of H.A. Ironside who pastored a moody church. I just, man, I got Ironside's books and I think, wow, traveling through Virginia with both these guys would be wonderful. One of them would be great. Well, as they're traveling, they met another pastor and uh, this pastor shared with them his testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was an older man nearing the end of his ministry, and he talks about how he was a student. He told Ray Stedman in Ironside how he was a student at Cambridge in England, an unbeliever. And uh, 
D.L. Moody was invited to come and speak to the student body. And the students at Cambridge were infuriated. They were so upset, those who disbelieved in particular, that they would invite an unschooled American preacher to give a lecture. And Moody was unschooled. In fact, the, the, the mystery of, of God's wonderful use of him is bound up in the fact that he, 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 they say he murdered the king's English every time he spoke. They said of Moody that he could say Jerusalem in one syllable. So he was coming to speak. And so this man and his friends decided to sit on the front row and wait for just the right time to humiliate and mock Dio Moody. Just before Moody stood to preach, Ira Sankey sang, and the crowd grew quiet and respectful. Immediately after the song, without allowing any introduction, Moody walked to the lectern, and he pointed his finger at the young men sitting on the front row. And he said, and I quote him, Young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you. he do. <laughs> this pastor said, perhaps this was the most ungrammatical sentence ever uttered at Cambridge University in public. <laughs> but there was such power in Moody's face and passion in his voice that these young men in the front row never interrupted him as he declared the gospel. And throughout the course of his message, he would repeat at different times that phrase, don't ever think God don't love you. He do. And after it was over, this man accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Terrible grammar. Terrific theology. This is the gospel. His love is present tense. Not just he did. Not just he will. Not just he might. He does. Not only does he love us, notice further in the text, he released us. Verse 5, the middle part, he released us from our sins by his blood. John's just singing about the love of Christ and the freedom he has from his sins by coming to Christ. And those who believed have been singing about these themes, haven't we, for now the church some 2,000 years with one hymn writer spilling over another, things like this, my sin, we sing. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, Spafford wrote. Or Charles Wesley, who wrote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. Amen? Amen to this. This is the doxology of the saint. This is the singing of the redeemed. He loves us, he released us, and third, he assigned us. Verse 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom, that is, we're now assigned as royalty, members in his kingdom. 
and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are now a holy priesthood. Peter will write in 1 Peter 2, 9. Well, what did a priest in the Old Testament do? What was his primary passion and thought? It was to bring the people near to God. So also we believers bring people the gospel and the power of the gospel brings them near to God. We are the ambassadors of God and we beg the world to be reconciled with him. And priests do what else? Well, they sacrifice. Well, what are we to sacrifice? We are to offer to him our bodies, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now, it was messy, but it was easier for the Old Testament priest to offer an animal that had been killed. Offering a dead sacrifice is easier than offering a live sacrifice. Dead sacrifices don't have the ability to crawl down off the altar. We do. And so we must offer ourselves daily to the one who loves us and has released us and has assigned us. And furthermore, Hebrews 13.5 says, we offer to God continually the sacrifice of praise. Well, this is the publication of the sovereign. This is the praise of the saint. What happens next is the prediction of the Savior. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Reference, obviously, to the Jewish people. And all the tribes of the earth, a reference to everybody else. Everybody will literally see this one coming back to earth. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming. And basically what Revelation will do is simply unpack this one verse. This is what this one verse means. Here's how it's going to happen. And what it's going to look like. And to whom he will come and when in the scheme of things within his own knowledge and omniscience. John says, this, this is not a hunch here. This is the promise of revelation. This is revelation signed by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then he says... Look, he is coming. And if John can say at the end of verse 3, all the time is very near, we can say, and by the way, you don't have to have a date, but if you say his coming is nearer than ever, you'll always be correct. It is nearer than ever before. One rabbi told a pastor, I was reading This pastor commented, a rabbi told him, look, what you Christians believe is that when the Messiah comes, that the Jewish people are going to say welcome, and you guys are going to say welcome back. It's an interesting thought, but it isn't exactly true, according to this verse. For all the people who survived the tribulation, especially the huge number of Jews who are regathered, who come, many of them to place their faith in Christ, who survive along with all the tribes, all the peoples of the earth, who populate the earth, who survive the horrible tribulation. When Christ comes and they see him coming and we, the bride, with him, 
coming in his glory and victory. All the earth will look upon him and will know. They will know. It isn't welcome. It's welcome back. You came the first time and you were rejected. You were crucified. You were despised. You are coming now back in splendor and glory to set up the kingdom of Christ on earth. And we will reign with him. And those who've believed in the tribulation will certainly be among those who say welcome back. John Phillips, the British Bible teacher and author, wrote in his commentary called Exploring Revelation, one of the most stirring pages in English history. He tells of the conquests of Richard I, the lion-hearted, he was called. But while Richard was away in battle, his kingdom fell on bad times, primarily because his brother John was sly and shrewd and corrupt and came and stole away the rights of the king and misruled the realm. The people of England suffered. Many legends came out of that period of time. The one we all know is the legend of Robin Hood. In reality, however, uh, Richard did come back. He landed in England and marched directly to his throne. And John put up one barrier after another, and John Phillips wrote that he knocked them all over like pins, bowling pins, until he reached the throne and the people shouted with relief and delight and joy and they rang the bells one peal after another. The lion-hearted was back. Long live the king. Phillips went on to write this wonderful summary and application. One day a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a a realm greater than England. Those who have abused the earth in his absence, seized his domains, and mismanaged his world will be swept aside. What a day that will be. Long live the king. This is not some wild fantasy. This is not just a hunch. This is the truth. And God the Father has signed it, the one who was and is and ever or, and, and, and will be. And the Son has signed it, this one who is the faithful uh, witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us and released us and assigned us. And it's signed by the complete perfection of the Spirit. This is his doing. This is his book. So what do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We offer to him our bodies, our lives, our loyalty, our love, our devotion, our time, our treasure. And we offer him the continual sacrifice of praise and we live in such a way that we, with our lives, say to everyone, long live the king of kings. Well, let's rehearse our praise. He sang his doxology. Let's sing one we know. Stand and let's sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. 
Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Sing it out. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.